and welcome to Star Wars Sleepover, a laid-back exploration of the captivating and sometimes ridiculous galaxy far, far away. I'm Europa Tokani, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Loya Rowan, and did you know that rebellions are built on hope? That hope has a smell? That everyday heroism that everyday people exhibit is hope? That betting is an expression of hope? That hope means you only need to get lucky once? I'm pretty sure that Hope was the prompt that all the authors were writing for in The Empire Strikes Back from a certain point of view. And today we're going to be talking about our favorite stories from the anthology. Let's do this. It's time once again for Cantina Quarter. Every episode, Loya and I each choose a Star Wars themed cocktail to enjoy during our sleepover. And for this episode, I'm actually doing a repeat, which I've never done before, but there's a good reason behind it. So I made a Coruscant cooler take two. And <laughs> the story behind it is so a few episodes back, we recorded. Galactic Glamour Part 2 with my sister, Siri, and a few days ago, I got a text from her asking if I had ordered black or dark cherry puree under her Amazon account, because it had arrived in an Amazon package, and I was like, no, why would I do that? And we had a whole, like... 10 to 15 minute conversation about how this dark cherry puree ended up at my house and just couldn't figure it out. We were like, yes, we've talked about it because it was supposed to be in the Coruscant cooler that we made mm. for Galactic Glamour part two, but we never ordered it. We searched it on Amazon probably, but like, why would it possibly have actually been ordered? And then <laughs> Siri was like, wait. And she texted one of her friends, and it turned out that he had listened to the episode recently, apparently, and heard her mention that we were were missing that ingredient and purchased it on Amazon and had it sent here. (laughs) Oh my god, that's amazing! That's so sweet! She had neglected to notice that there was a note, like a gift (laughs) note in the box. (laughs) That was like, for the next time you're mixing up drinks in the cantina and like had his name on it. And if she had just seen that, she would have known where it had come from. But in any case, because we did have the dark cherry puree, I just had to try the recipe again and see how it is when it has all of the intended ingredients. So this is the Coruscant Cooler recipe from the official Galaxy's Edge cookbook. And I'm going to try this version that is actually totally correct to the recipe. Wow. That's a good friend. It's really good. It does actually make a difference. So Does it really? Wow. Yeah. Last time we just did like a splash of grenadine, which yeah. was not quite right because grenadine is not really cherry but yeah the puree like does really add something and it's it's not as sweet it's very balanced definitely get the dark cherry puree if you're gonna make this recipe and thank you to anonymous friends of siri so loya what did you make for this episode so i made 
a Kessel Run cocktail, which amazingly is something I hadn't discovered previously. <laughs> like many episodes we've done involving Star Wars cocktails. And this is on Wine Enthusiast. And it just happened that because of other Star Wars <laughs> cocktails, I had all the ingredients. I did have to buy blackberries, especially. But it involves blackberries, mezcal, maraschino liqueur, uh, lime juice, creme de violette, which again, <laughs> floral palette, a lime wedge, and speared berries for garnish. I want to throw a speared maraschino cherry on here, but we just ran out. So I just have the blackberry and the <laughs> very desiccated lemon. <laughs> it's, a, it's a repeat for me. The lemons just... <laughs> uh they last a long time in our house and then they dry out and are hard to use for garnish so i also added just a lot of liquor so i added a splash of um like grapefruit soda so we'll see oh god i love mezcal oh so good this is a weird weird drink though it's very weird possibly the soda was a mistake i feel like it would probably like shine more if I hadn't thrown that in. Also not but. sure about mezcal with creme de violet yeah. either. Right? Yeah. The mezcal just obliterates any other flavor. Like, yeah. I feel like all of these are just like, the blackberries are fine. And the mezcal is fine. But the maraschino liqueur and the creme de violet is just like, not necessary in this. Yeah, but it's also like a very delicate flavor, so it's mm -hmm. easy to imagine that Mezcal would just totally like drown it out. Yeah, it it tastes like, especially with the soda, it tastes kind of like a Mezcal Rita with a faint floral undertone. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't like blame the recipe because obviously I changed it, but maybe <laughs> not this one <laughs> well mezcal is always good anyway i don't yeah. have any more so i should definitely try and pick up some mezcal yeah it's great for summer cheers cheers, cheers. and now it's time for the most droid segments where we discuss other ways we've been interacting with star wars and any housekeeping items we may have of which I have none. <laughs> I guess I have them all this week. Well, some of this you can chime in on because we've discussed it. Yes. So we are recording this episode on May 9th. So this past week was, of course, May the 4th and Star Wars Day. So Loya and I were texting back and forth about what was going on. And there was no major news. So there's not really anything to report on that front, but there were a few small things. So <laughs> we had talked again in the Galactic Glamour part two episode about the so-called real lightsaber that Disney had created that was on that press call that like no one saw except the people on the call. There were no photos, no video. Well, <laughs> on May the 4th, Disney Parks released a very brief video of one of the rays from Galaxy's Edge igniting this lightsaber. And I still don't really know what to say about it. Like, I saw it while I was eating breakfast, and 
I literally just watched it like 20 times in a row and my brain still just could not accept that it was not Mm-mm. a visual effect. Like, I feel like I almost was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. But it was because I'm used to seeing lightsabers in Star Wars movies and being like, yeah, okay, it's a lightsaber. But like, I just could not <laughs> process the fact that it was something someone was holding and like if I had been standing right in front of her I would have seen it and it would have looked like it did in the movies even though it was in real life yeah I I loved watching that clip over and over like it's mm, yeah it still doesn't make sense to me I want to know the how the why I mean obviously not the why but like the details so yes Unfortunately, someone in my household read about how people think it works, so now I know more about it than I wanted to know, but... Ooh, you should send (laughs) that to me. I'm very intrigued. I can run it by Darth Brooks, too, because he's an engineer and he knows more. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to see what the source is, but it's still really cool. Apparently, it's going to be in the Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel, like... (laughs) Sorry. It's not going to be available, doesn't sound like, to purchase. It's just going to be this special thing that's there. So <laughs> they were teasing it as part of that. And there was also some more information about Galactic Star Cruiser, really just about the entertainment they're going to have. So there's going to be like a dinner club that apparently is going to have a Twilight performer. Oh my god, wait, can we stay there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. You had me a real lightsaber. (laughs) At no point have they released any information about how much this is going to cost, and I'm assuming it's going to be a lot. They Um, describe it as basically being like a cruise, so there's like a set departure date and return date, and I think it's like two days, three nights, something like that. And you have, like, a whole itinerary. The whole idea is that you're supposed to be on this starship. So, like, you're not just, like, getting up and, like, going to the park. Like, you're getting up and there's, like, stuff happening on the ship. And I also just heard that they are hiring actors to play Rey and Kylo Ren, specifically for Galactic Star Cruiser, and they need to have, like, martial arts and stage combat experience. <laughs> and there is an excursion off of the ship where you go to Batuu, a.k.a. Oh Galaxy's Edge. God. But, like, that's it. Like, you're not in Disney. Like, there is no outside world. You're just on the spaceship. Could we do that and our other plan? <laughs> <laughs> How much money Maybe can I save up in, the lottery, in, I don't know. <laughs> in 18 months? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Restaurants are open. <laughs> I, I'm saving it up for the Galactic Star Cruiser. <laughs> I was talking to one of my other friends, and we were just like, I just want Disney to give us a price. Just like, mm-hmm. say how much it's going to be so that I can evaluate it and then, like, save them if I need to and she was or like, yeah have her spirits crushed immediately yeah. instead well of, like, she was like, like I'm, she basically was like I'm just gonna justify it to myself no matter what and like <laughs> she started listing off she's like 
well, you know, it's going to be all inclusive. So like, they're going to give you meals. You're going to have entertainment. You're going to. This sounds so compelling. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I should mention that I've had a vacation fund for the last like. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not going to mention that. That sounds depressing. So we'll just be optimistic and yeah, save up. So speaking oh of <laughs> spending money, that is something else I did on May the 4th. So I was keeping an eye on Shop Disney because they always have exclusive things for that day. And I had heard a rumor that they were going to be selling Leia's lightsaber from Rise of Skywalker, which despite my very complicated feelings about Leia training as a Jedi and Leia having that lightsaber... I still want because (laughs) it's first of all gorgeous and it's Leia's lightsaber. And the rumor was that they were selling it together with the reforged Skywalker lightsaber. So the one that was Anakin's and then Luke's and then Ray has it. And my brother-in-law and I were actually like texting each other that morning about it. And he was like, well, I'm interested in the Skywalker lightsaber, like, if you wanted to buy them and split the cost. And I was like, oh, maybe. And then <laughs> we were both on the website. We had to wait in a digital queue to get in. And then I got in and immediately looked for the lightsabers, and they were $375. <laughs> so I did not purchase the lightsabers. I have heard that Leia's lightsaber is for sale on its own at Gauss Edge for like $175 or something like that, which is still expensive, but like, that's, (laughs) I don't know, like, I would consider that. So, I don't know if I'll purchase it at some time in the future, but I did not on May 4th. And then Shop Disney also came out with new (laughs) Star Wars (laughs) Starbucks location mugs which i like immediately purchased so i went through a lot to get (laughs) the empire strikes back ones last year i have all three of them so i now have hoth dustin dagobah and then the new ones are tatooine endor Mm, i love the endor one and batu so that was exciting. I already got them, which is surprising. Oh, like usually that is. stuff Disney takes a long time, but I got them like on Thursday. It was That's crazy. crazy. Yeah, because the fourth was Tuesday. Yeah. Wow. I don't know why they came so quickly, but I already have them. And then I also ordered a print from Karen Hallion, which if you don't know her, she is an awesome artist. She does a lot gorgeous. of gorgeous work for like female heroes in general and actually real women and I love her work. I have a Empire Strikes Back Leia print and she recently came out with a Return of the Jedi one that I had wanted but I had not purchased it yet. And she had a deal for May 4th where she was offering discontinued Star Wars celebration prints that she had done. If you spent a certain amount in her shop, and I really wanted one of those. Yes. I ended up getting that. And then I also purchased some mini prints from Kara, 
into a larger world zine. So I'm excited to get all of those. That does sound exciting. I'm so curious which um, celebration print you'll get. They're all pretty, but I want to know. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. I don't like I said there was no real like earth-shattering news or anything, but it was a good day. And then I also watched The Bad Batch. We all watched it in my household even though some of us didn't want nice. to. <laughs> Wait, who but, did you want to? <laughs> uh, like myself and my brother-in-law wanted to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Our spouses did not. <laughs> but we all watched it together as a special Star Wars Day activity. So yes, it was fine. I liked it more than I thought I would have. I really? have been pretty honest on this podcast. I think about the fact that I was not super excited about the Bad Batch. Their Clone Wars episodes were okay. Like It wasn't something that... Yeah. I was, like, just <laughs> waiting to see. But it was good. It was interesting. I'm definitely interested to see where it goes. I haven't seen the second episode yet, which just came out on Friday. But I will definitely continue watching. So, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I will have to check it out. I feel like that is something... Honestly, the name... Like, I love the clones, and the Bad Batch episodes were okay for Clone Wars, but the title of this, really, <laughs> not good. The only other thing I wanted to briefly mention in the Mousetroid segment is that I also just got the Art of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge book, and I mentioned before I love all the Art of Star Wars books. Like, I just really enjoy reading through them and looking at all the concept art and all the ideas and how ideas evolve. And this is like even better because (laughs) I love Disney and I love Galaxy's Edge. So I have to thank Loya because she actually purchased this (laughs) as a surprise (laughs) gift for me, although I had already pre-ordered it. Like (laughs) this was a disaster. Okay. (laughs) I basically was sitting there being like, I need to thank Europa for all the work she's done editing because it's a lot of work to edit and I don't contribute at all. And so I was looking, I was looking, and I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is the perfect gift. It's perfect. And I pre-ordered it. It was fantastic. And then I sat there. And I was like, wait, pre-order what if she already ordered it? <laughs> so I texted Europa. <laughs> Very general question. Oh, by the way, have you pre-ordered anything from the Star Wars lately? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and the site I used wouldn't allow me to cancel the order. So thankfully Amazon did. Kudos to Amazon. Um, yeah, but... <laughs> Next time, it will be a surprise, and it will not be something that you were anticipating nine months ago. (laughs) It's all good. I definitely would recommend it. It's by Amy Ratcliffe, who (laughs) is awesome. She also recently did the Jedi Mind Star Wars Mindfulness book, which is also awesome. So, Yeah, I need to activate my hold on that. Yeah, definitely check out her stuff. But yeah, definitely excited to have that. 
into our main topic of discussion, which is Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back from a certain point of view. So this book was released back at the end of 2020 for the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. And there had previously been a New Hope version, which we've also read. Mm -hmm. So there have been two collections so far, and they both consist of 40 short stories to celebrate the 40th anniversary of each film. And another really cool thing about these books is that all of the proceeds actually go to charity. So there is a little blurb inside the book that says, all participating authors have generously foregone any compensation for their stories. Instead, their proceeds will be donated to First Book, a leading nonprofit that provides new books, learning materials, and other essentials to educators and organizations serving children in need. And then in addition to that, Penguin Random House, who publishes the book, donates $100,000 to First Book, and then Disney Lucasfilm donates 100,000 children's books. So that's pretty awesome, in addition to just being like a cool way to look at the films in a different way. It also has a positive impact on reading and literacy, so definitely like that about these books. Yes. Agreed. And, then, and then both books kind of have a mix of authors who are already known in the Star Wars fandom. So, you know, Daniel Jose Older, who we've talked about before, Amy Ratcliffe, who I just mentioned. And then there are some newcomers to Star Wars, at least like Tracy Dion and Brittany N. Williams. And we'll be talking about both of their stories later. So, Loya, just to start us off, what were your thoughts on the book overall and in contrast to A New Hope from a certain point of view? So I think on our last episode, you had talked about, like, this one going more slowly. And that was definitely true for me as well. The, as I alluded to in my <laughs> intro, the first, like, chunk of stories just really hammered home the theme of hope so much that I was like a little obnoxious to me at the ends. I feel like the, like maybe, maybe last half, the second half or like maybe the last third, it really like picked up for me. And there were definitely like stories I really liked or like aspects I really liked of some of the stories, but uh, they, I mean, the hope theme kind of continues throughout, like, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, it's a little over the top. <laughs> flashbacks to Rogue One. So many flashbacks to Rogue One. <laughs> so many flashbacks. I, I really liked, and I'll talk about this for, like, my favorite stories. I like the focus on, like, getting insight into the Empire and also just, like, I mean, it's from a certain point of view. So you get these, like, views that you wouldn't otherwise experience in Star Wars. And I, I like that. I continue to like that format. This one, I would definitely rank below the first one. I overall. agree, which I'm surprised by, because I really mm -hmm. enjoyed A New Hope from a certain point of view. It did go much quicker for me. Yes. Like, I feel like I made it through that one in a lot less time. And... I'm going to be totally honest. I didn't read this book like from cover to cover. I skipped some things and 
I don't know why it is that this book was slower for me and why it was harder for me to get into it. I don't, like, it's just weird because Empire Strikes Back is my favorite movie of them all, so you would think that I would like this book more than A New Hope, and I would just, like, be thrilled to be looking at Empire Strikes Back from all these different angles, but I almost feel like that's part of the problem, that I do like Empire Strikes Back so much, and that I feel like it's pretty much like a perfect movie, so I don't know if I need to have all of these other ways of looking at it, and looking at it from different angles and like just going over the events of the movie, but from a different perspective, I feel like I appreciated that more for a new hope. And mm-hmm. maybe that's because, you know, like it, it was the first movie. The world hadn't been totally fleshed out completely yet. So I feel like there's maybe more room for that versus in the empire strikes back. And when we get to the stories that I chose, like, it'll kind of make sense what I'm saying right now, because they're not points of view that you would think of, and they're not, like, points of view that you would ever get from the movie. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe that is part of it. But, yeah, I, I definitely would also rank a new hope from a certain point of view higher. I'm looking to see like where I have Empire Strikes Back in my Yes, see the Empire Strikes Back is number four for me. Because <laughs> like it, it, there are parts that I really like about this one, but like it is there are parts I don't. <sighs> yeah. But that's why, like, going back, I, I really want to, like, let you know which stories I want to talk about because, like, I didn't want you to, like, <laughs> be blindsided by, like, oh, I read this one and, you know, you had skipped it. So there were, so the pacing was just off on the stories, too, right? Like, I picked Rendezvous Point, I believe, as, like, an honorable mention for me. That story is... I, it's okay. That one was really tough for me. Like, yeah. really tough. It's I, sluggish. And that's Jason Fry's story, right? Yeah, and we're reading Jason Fry for our next episode. Our final episode of the season is reading his adaptation of The Last Jedi. But here's the thing. I actually just read today, like, literally an hour ago, the first chapter of The Last Jedi novelization. Yeah. And it, it like, hooked me immediately. So I feel like I'm going to like The Last Jedi novelization, but I don't know if it was just the subject matter of that story that I was not that into. I I don't know. It was just, like, it was very long. It was very detailed. It was very long. (laughs) It was very long. I liked the detail, but at the same time, like, I I wouldn't describe it as, like, a particularly captivating story. It was one of the stories, like, it took me three weeks to read this book. (laughs) like that's that was my pace on average last year but this year it has been going quicker for me and this was kind of like me dragging my feet be like okay next story so yeah that's kind of very like there was good good stories here I just don't know if it was like the way they were told or I don't know I don't know what it was for me well it's hard because 
obviously it's 40 different authors so there's there can't be consistency in the writing style mm-hmm. and the subject matter is kind of like all over the place so i mean if you're like super into <laughs> pilots and like all of the specifics of piloting and x-wing and you really want to spend time with that, then, you know, Jason Fry's story is for you. <laughs> if you don't want that, then it can be difficult to spend that much time on it. So I I do, again, feel like I kind of had to pick and choose more with this book and be like, well, what are the aspects of the movie that I would be interested in spending more time with mm-hmm. and focus on those stories? It's interesting who was included in this next iteration of from a certain point of view and who wasn't in terms of like the kind of people that our fandoms familiar with and not like I thought it was surprising that E.K. Johnson didn't make an appearance. I know Danielle Jose Older is in both like it was just kind of like, huh. It seemed like there were a lot more newer voice, a lot newer voices. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the reason why E.K. Johnston wasn't included was because she just hasn't really written in this era of Star Wars. She was included in, from a certain point of view, A New Hope, I think, mm-hmm. because they decided to include an Ahsoka story, which made sense. Right. And other than that, she's only really written in the prequel era, so... That's true. That might yeah. be why. Yeah. And like Will Wheaton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't really it. need Will Wheaton. To <laughs> That's very together. true. <laughs> I will say from my experience of May 4th, my mother sent me a GIF. <laughs> that was happy Star Wars Day. And then it was a GIF from Doctor Who. <laughs> I still, I, I tried, like, talking to her about it, and I, it wasn't clear whether or not that was intentional. <laughs> like, I think it was. <laughs> I had a conversation with my boss, who actually is no longer my boss now. He he left wow. our, our organization, but... I had a conversation with him last week on May 5th where he was like, oh, yeah, yesterday was May 4th. Like, you're a Star Wars fan, aren't you? And I was like, yep. (laughs) And he was like, have you ever seen Spaceballs? (laughs) I have not. And I was like, I actually have not. And I was like, it's weird that I haven't because, like, I am, like, a huge Star Wars fan and have been for most of my life, but I have never seen Spaceballs, and he was like, oh, you you like have to watch it. So maybe that's something that we have to do in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'm also surprised because my family is are Mel Brooks fans, and so it's like even more unlikely that I've not seen Spaceballs because of that. Just, yeah. I get the feeling this is one of those things my dad like didn't really enjoy. Much like the Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, <laughs> and then for, we never watched it. So, yeah, well, I'll have to ask him about it. Dad, why did we never watch Spaceballs? But I think he owns it, so I don't know. I don't know why I've never seen it. Alright, so <laughs> the approach we took with this book was that we each chose three stories that were our favorites. And we're going to discuss those. 
So I'm going to start off with mine. They kind of have an overall theme of just being like bizarre and out there being from a totally unexpected perspective, like I mentioned, and also having to do either with creatures of some kind or like non-human consciousnesses that are narrating the story. And also in most cases having to do with the force in some way. So I don't know why those are the ones that I gravitated towards. There were others that I would have thought that I would like more than these, but like, these are the ones that really captured me. <laughs> so we will start off with my first one. She will keep them warm by Delilah S. Dawson. I was familiar with Delilah S. Dawson because she is the author of the Black Spire novel, which is a novel about Galaxy's Edge, which I did read before I went to Galaxy's Edge and really enjoyed it, like, much more than I expected to. I just went into it being like, yeah, I'm going to read this because it's going to have backstory on Galaxy's Edge. I want to go into it, like, being familiar with it as a place. But as a novel... Like, regardless of it being about Galaxy's Edge, it was so good. I highly recommend it, especially if you're going to Galaxy's Edge. But even if you're not, like, the characters are so compelling. It's about Vi Moradi, who is the Resistance spy, who actually roams around too at Galaxy's Edge. Like, she is a character in the park. And I met her. It was very exciting. She actually complimented my friend's hair and my friend was not a Star Wars fan and she was just like very uncomfortable. But <laughs> in any case, <laughs> I did meet her. And yeah, I really loved that book. I also have been meaning to read the Phasma novel that she wrote, especially because I've seen yes, it compared please. to Mad Max Fury Road, which is like one of my favorite movies I forced everyone in my household to watch it recently. Like I love that movie so much. <laughs> so definitely want to read something that Delilah S. Dawson wrote that is similar to that. And I want to learn more about Phasma. So I don't know why I haven't read that yet, but adding it to the list for next <laughs> season. <laughs> Despite all that, this particular story in, from a certain point of view is from the perspective of a Tauntaun. And I never would have anticipated that this would have been one of my favorite stories, but Delilah S. Dawson made it happen. So the story is told from the perspective of, I'm going to say, Mura, who is the Tauntaun that Han ends up riding out on to go and find Luke when he's stranded on Hoth. And through her eyes, we kind of learn about the lives of the Tauntauns on Hoth after the rebels have established their base there and what they're experiencing as they're being domesticated and being ridden and they're not able to roam free like they normally would. And we kind of experience Mira's family life. We see her thoughts worrying about her pregnant daughter, Reba, who is the Tauntaun that Luke has gone out on, on Hoth. And Reba is also carrying Mira's first grandchildren. And then there's also a scene where there's a fight in the Tauntaun paddock between Mira <laughs> and another Tauntaun who is trying to challenge her for supremacy among Mirror's group and become the matriarch. The story is also 
also very interesting because it also mentions Leia and Mira basically just knows Leia is this human female, but she knows her because Leia is kind of coming and seeking solace with the Tauntauns and just spending alone time with them, like trying to get away from everything and clear her thoughts. And it's clear that it's really kind of a mutually beneficial relationship between Mura and Leia and that they're finding solace in one another, which is really nice. And so nice. I had a couple of passages that I wanted to read. So, This is a passage about Leia. So Mira is talking about, you know, how the rebels are all noisy. They're always kind of bringing chaos and she doesn't like the fact that they're putting harnesses on her and yanking at her head. And she doesn't really understand it. And then there's this passage. Mira vastly prefers the female rebel with the soft voice the one who stayed with her when she was throwing her most recent set of Tauntlet twins confined to a stall alone. It was a difficult birth, probably because Tauntauns are meant to run out their labor, not to pace in a cramped corner. But the female rebel sat with her, stroking her face, murmuring comforting things. And when the two Tauntlets were finally out, the same rebel warned the male caretakers away, saying, she's exhausted. Give us a little breathing room. Goodness knows we all need it. And then... There's another passage a little bit further down the page where Mira is thinking about Leia like scratching her around the ears and she tells her, I know how you feel. Always busy, always pushed this way and that. I think this is the first time I've been alone in months. A soft chuckle. Not that I'm alone with you and the babies. When the rebel reached down to caress the new sleeping tauntlets, Mira allowed it. So... I just really like that, and Leia also, like, (laughs) basically is confiding in Mira, which if you think about it, like, I'm sure Leia doesn't have many people (laughs) to talk to, Mm -hmm. like, she's in charge of all these people, she's commanding them, like, there aren't people she's gonna just be vulnerable with, so there's another passage where she's talking to Mira about Luke missing... And she says, oh, Mira, Luke's taking too long and Han is leaving. Why can't they both be in the same place at the same time where I can keep an eye on them? The rebel looks around at the other Tauntauns and smiles. I wonder if that's how you feel when Arno and Boz are out. Like your Tauntlets are full grown and you trust them, but you'd feel a lot better if you were personally watching over them. (laughs) Also, I know how you feel, Leia. So... (laughs) I just like really love the treatment of Leia in this and this relationship that is expressed between her and Mira. It's just very sweet. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, although that is all very sweet and we get to know Mira very well and she has a really strong narrative voice, even though she's a Tauntaun, it doesn't end well. So, obviously, Luke continues to be missing, and Han decides that he needs to go out to look for him. And, as I mentioned, Mira is the tauntaun that he takes out. 
Yura at first is happy to be leaving because she's been in this pen. She wants to be able to run out in the open and she especially wants to be able to go out and be with her daughter who she's worried also about being out too long, just like Leia is worried about Luke. So she's excited to be going towards her and I will read kind of the end of the story as well. So this is when she and Han are leaving. The noisy rebel nudges her forward and Yura gladly runs out the open door, nostrils wide open, scenting the icy air for any sign of her daughter. She takes in a deep breath and her body lights up incandescent. Here she is an animal again. She is herself. She feels the snow underneath her feet and her tail swinging fully in the freezing air. It is exhilarating and right and beautiful, and for just a moment, before he jerks her reins and sets her course, Yura remembers what it was to be free. And then they basically catch the scent of Luke. It's the younger rebel male, the one Reba carried this morning. The trail is old and faint, but it is enough. If she can find him, perhaps she will find her daughter, and when the temperature falls, they can huddle together and share their warmth. It's the only thing to survive a night this cold on Hoth, and she is determined to live to morning. She runs like the wind as the sun begins to set. She will find her daughter and protect her, protect the next generation of Tauntlets in her daughter's belly. She is driven by blood and love. She will protect those she loves. She will keep them warm. Well, we know how this ends. <laughs> and it so- does not end well for either of them. Reba's killed by the Wampa. Yeah, so Reba is dead, and Mura is, well, Mura dies from either exhaustion or exposure, and then they slice her open with the lightsaber to protect Luke. So what are your thoughts on this story, Leah? <laughs> I also loved this story. Loved it. I, as we talked about in the pod, I was a horse girl. And a lot of this like echoed a lot of the horse stories I read as a child. Yeah. And also, the when you say paddock, I can't think <laughs> about Jurassic Park and the raptor paddock. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. <laughs> the raptor paddock. <laughs> um this also, like, there is another story shortly after this one, the naturalist, a naturalist on Hoth, where they directly address the fact that, like, you know, Mura, 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 uh, Mura froze to death. And, like, this is part of the naturalist, like, decision to stay on Hoth is just, like, did they even notice? Did they even care? I, yeah, this makes. <laughs> This makes like when I watch The Empire Strikes Back again, this is gonna make that scene so much harder, knowing the backstory for Mira. But so well written. Yeah, it's very tragic, but it's so well written, and I like that I had the chance to get to know Mira. Exactly. Exactly. I like the dynamics, I like the matriarchal society. I it's just yeah, very devastating to know that like this is what happens when they leave. There is also a story from the perspective of the Wampa as well, which is interesting, but I did not choose that one. No, that one wasn't as compelling, although it did directly address hope. Uh, 
Yeah. Yes. So the second one I chose was This Is No Cave by Catherine M. Valente. I was not familiar with this author, but now I do definitely want to check out her books because she's an award-winning science fiction author. So definitely going to have to go on Goodreads and add mm-hmm. some of her books to my list. This story also was just like so compelling and tragic. never thought I tragic as well. <laughs> Again, there's a theme, but it just was so unique and I just loved it. So I honestly like did not even fully get this story the first time I read it because there are so many just like world building terms Mm -hmm. that are created for the story. And it was a little hard to follow. Not going to lie, but it was very special. So this story is from the perspective of the space slug, AKA the Exegorth (laughs) who swallows the millennium Falcon. And I don't even want to assign a gender to Sayo, but it is Sayo the Exegorth. And again, it's a really strong narrative voice and perspective. And like I mentioned, there are all these hints about what Exegorth society is like and what Sayo's life experience is like and like what it means to be Sayo. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm gonna read some more i feel like i have like so many excerpts that i could read from this one in particular so i'm sorry if i just like read half of this story but not sorry as always not sorry (laughs) (laughs) so first of all there's a lot of mention of what sayo experiences as the hum which is the force but that's how (laughs) sayo experiences it and Sayo explains that in the hum, their name means the color of unloneliness, which is also a theme of the story. That Sayo is looking for other creatures basically to live within Sayo to not be alone. And some of those creatures are the Minox. But I will get to that in a second. So, (laughs) Sayo also explains, it lives within the road of all moons, the great rhythm of life, the infinitely repeating journey towards the galactic core and away again, out to the rim, then back to the churning stew of life and energy, then the long sail into emptiness once more. At sublight speed, the road was long, but Sayo did not mind. Not on its first circuit. There was so much to witness, so much to experience. Empires and apocalypses, golden ages and eons of suffering swarming over planets as it passed them by. Wars that consumed systems, pieces that devoured time. Sometimes the soldiers wear masks, sometimes they did not. Sometimes they all bore the same face, sometimes they were children. Sometimes they used ships, sometimes they snuffed out the enemies with a thought. All of it interested Sayo, even the things that horrified it. It watched the Sith and the Jedi before they invented those names for themselves, and then it watched them swell and diminish and swell again like tides of light and darkness. It added mournings and jubilations for them to the hum and swept on through the stars. Like, what a great passage. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right, so let's get to the Minox. 
<laughs> so here's another passage. It had found them in a ship graveyard in the Rylot system. By then, Sayo's aloneness had grown sharper and colder than planetary rings. It yearned, but could not comprehend its own yearning. It yearned for others. By the time Sayo emerged from the background blackness, whatever battle had been so important to those ships had ended. They floated in space, inert, blast scars blistering their hulls, broken guts, breached engine cores, and like carrion birds on a temperate world, the butterflies had come to feast on the dead. So it calls Minox butterflies. Oh my gosh, so so sweet. Like, I was, ugh. Yeah. It just wants to be with the butterflies. And so Sayo is, like, very excited about the butterflies. It's with the butterflies. It wants to bring the butterflies to the clue, which is like a gathering of the exegords. And there's also mention that some of them would have other things like squid whales, the purgle. I love mentions ah, of the purgle. Yes. Oh my gosh. But basically nobody likes the Minox, which is very sad. That was devastating. No, I, I mean, I used devastating too much. Um, yes. That was when her elders just like disparage the butterflies and say they're space Karen and it will always be space Karen. Like, <sighs> yeah. Poor Sayo. So then Sayo is also very happy when the Millennium Falcon is inside of it. <laughs> So, again, like, I don't know. I can't adequately explain this story without reading it. So, it could not see what they were exactly. Butterflies or starlight-colored birds or lizards. No, no one could see well inside their own stomach. But Sayo could taste and smell them. It could feel them. And more important than any sense, it knew they were together at last. Together forever, the great worm and these tiny flames, so alive and so bright. So hot, so quick, talking with their mouths back and forth at a speed that made Sayo feel slightly ill. One screamed like a beast covered in long hair, whose every strand carried the musk of other worlds. One spoke always as though he was mocking, but was not. And some of them were not carbon or even flesh, but silicon like Sayo. Not quite like. These tasted like metal, where Sayo was stone. But they crackled with life all the same. And something else... One of them, the female, burned with another light all her own, a light Sayo had sometimes felt in its long travelings, a force that bound the planets and the space between them and everything on them, too, a wave that carried the exegorts through the galaxy, but also splashed on each lonely shore of each lonely world, almost like the hum, but without sound or vibration, without a dislike of butterflies, without border or boundary. One of the beings inside Sayo glowed incandescent with it, incandescent with it, as steady as her own heartbeat. And so in those moments, as dear as darkness, Sayo glowed too. So another theme is that, well, at least these first two stories have to do with Leia. Mm -hmm. And like this description of what Sayo can see in Leia and her force sensitivity, again, is just like amazing. (laughs) Pretty much my whole discussion of this story is just going to be about how amazing it is. Let's be honest. (laughs) But then again, it is also very tragic and sad. 
so obviously, like, no one on the Millennium Falcon is happy that they are inside of an Exegorth. So <laughs> there's a description of them leaving, and Sayo is trying to keep them inside because from Sayo's perspective, like, they are safe there, and he wants to keep, or they want to keep them, they want to be together with them, and that's not how everyone else sees it. So they start trying to escape. The beautiful animals inside it were angry. They were hurting it. They made fires and stoked them hot, so hot the delicate membranes of its body recoiled and shrank back. The hum in its mind became a shriek of agony. What was happening? Why would they do this? Why had Sayo what had Sayo done wrong? How had it angered its new friends? Perhaps they had guessed what the other Exegors knew. Sayo was silly and stupid. It had no real art. It thought Minox were butterflies and it loved them. They had found out Sayo was a child and decided they could not love it. No one could. They were leaving. And then <laughs> Sayo is like thinking to itself. Stay, I am all you need. Stay with me, friends. I will make the butterflies go if you do not like them. They are nothing, as the elder said. I was silly. I was young. I know better now. Please, I do not want to be alone again. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. So, obviously they leave. And Sayo and the butterflies were left alone. And basically, like, much time passes, but Sayo still thinks about the Millennium Falcon and everyone that was on it. And this is probably my favorite passage, and I swear I'll stop reading passages <laughs> from this story right after this one. Everyone traveled all together, always. That was a small part of what the incandescence the woman carried meant. There was another word for it, a word those beings used, but Sayo could not recall, a small word for small mouths, but it meant something so big. Sayo would meet its beloveds again. It would meet the atoms that had once been them, which was no different. In the incandescence it had sensed reverberating through the woman, it would find them again, and they would laugh at these ancient times long past, these griefs that once seemed so important. They would understand then the love Sayo meant when it sealed its mouth and altered its internal pressure and instructed its respiratory system to begin the manufacture of oxygen. Sayo would understand in turn what urgency drove them so hard towards unsafety. It would know that the other beings, it would know what the other be no. It would know the other beings they knew. It would grasp what kept them so hot and quick, what had made them afraid. And in that glow, they would all move as one outward toward the known and unknown. One day, they would find each other again, and no one would be alone. This author is a poet. For real. Yeah. She's got an amazing turn of phrase. Like, the story was incredible. I would have to say that's probably my favorite one of them all. Yeah. Like, really just incredible. Like, on another level, not only in making me really care about Sayo, but just in like the exploration of the nature of the force and how even the exogorths are part of the force and like what the force means and that aspect of togetherness and like 
everything being one in the force and the way that the author was able to express it is just amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And also just like it's the it's the explanation you didn't know you needed, right? Like in when you're watching the movie, it really doesn't make sense. They fly into this giant exogorth and nothing happens for a good long while. And this just like takes that crafts an amazing, compelling explanation. And then just also just within what 20 pages, an entire world that like you get to know an entirely new species. It's incredible. And also you should feel for Darth Brooks because <laughs> This is one of the stories I ended on one night, and I'm like, God, I just feel so sad. The story was so sad, like loneliness. And he's like, Do you feel lonely? <laughs> like, no, no, this exagore. And he's like, What's an exagore? <laughs> and then I had to explain the entire story to him at like 10:30. So yeah. <laughs> I actually read this one right before bed one day, too. But yeah. the thing is, it is very sad in the part where, you know, they're they're leaving Sayo. But at the same time, like that final passage that I read, there's still this knowledge and this wisdom that Sayo won't always be separated from them. They'll meet again. Like the song. It's very profound. <laughs> uh, Not in a sarcastic way. No, no. <laughs> like, honestly, is very profound. Um, The Fast and the Furious. Oh, no. <laughs> this is where I, I don't know why. I was, like, assuming you were talking about some, like, old ballad or something. No. I was like, yes, like, no. like, a song that would be sung at someone's funeral. Like, I was like, yes, you're right. Like, you know, you like... <laughs> it's true that you're not alone and like you know people that you've loved are still with you and then you're like the song from the best <laughs> Miss Khalifa see you again I know <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of anyway. I guess same sentiment yeah exactly we just now need to create a music video that involves the Xbox oh, that song <laughs> uh <laughs> I feel so bad now. <laughs> I know. Sorry. This is an amazing story. I degraded it. <laughs> okay. So the last story I chose was Virgins by Tracy Dion. And this actually was the one that I was the most excited about when they started kind of advertising all of the stories that were going to be featured and the authors. And the author had stated that it was going to be from the point of view of the cave on Dagobah. And I was, as we often say on this podcast, here for it. <laughs> I don't remember this being advertised. Like I remember the ones I picked because I was like, wait, this was one of the like teaser teaser blurbs that we had shared beforehand i don't know if it was a teaser blurb or it was just that the author like announced like she announced that she was going to have a story and mentioned it it might have been that mm -hmm. gotcha so yeah it is totally from the point of view of the cave who basically kind of gains 
consciousness through the fact that people are coming there hoping to gain knowledge of themselves. So it's like gaining awareness of itself from people trying to gain awareness of themselves. But they also don't go about it in a productive way. So I guess we're, I'm going to read. There's going to be so much reading in this episode. <laughs> I didn't write any passages down. So <laughs> <laughs> Mine are going to be quite brief. <laughs> so the cave is talking about people coming to it and says they were disruptive creatures. They'd come climbing through the woods with their minds so loud that my second understanding came quickly. Thoughts. Some were sharp, fresh, and brandished before them like a shield. Some were worn like tumbled stone on the bottom of a bog. Thoughts rolled around in a mind, then buried. Thinking themselves alone, many would broadcast their curiosity, their needs, their questions. I could always feel them coming. At the edges of the swamp shore, their boots either slowed with care or quickened with pride. But when they reached the neural tree, they'd pause at my cold and dread. Always. So then... <laughs> It also talks about how consume these memories, a fuel so rich as to bring a kind of life to stone and slime and rot like me. And then this story also has a lot to do with Yoda and Yoda coming to Dagobah and the fact that he keeps returning to the cave and kind of reviewing his own failures and his mistakes which isn't something that anyone else does. Like the cave talks about how people come because they, they want something, they want to understand something, but when they do get that information, they reject it. So there's this passage, visitors seek my offerings, perhaps even claim to desire them, but none truly desire what I show them. None hold them close when they exit, none carry them out willingly. No, they leave in a rush, already shedding what I've given, pressing my images down in a way and pushing them out of their young minds as quickly as possible. They leave seeking the vast emptiness of space or the faces of comrades or the life that does not ask them to face the fears that I relish. So that's where Yoda is different. And the cave talks about basically showing him all his failings over and over again. The apprentices that he's failed, just everything that's brought him to Dagobah, but Yoda doesn't stop coming back. And then eventually we get to Luke. So Obi-Wan comes to Yoda and asks him to take on Luke, to train Luke. And in response to this, the cave shows him, you know, again all of his failings. He shows him Dooku, his former Padawan. He shows him the clones marching to Yoda's orders. He shows him Ahsoka and, of course, Anakin. And Yoda's response is, old fears are these, stubborn, but see them I must. Yoda stands against his tormentors, nodding not at them, but at me. My thanks you have. And then the old master leaves my shadows. And then obviously Luke comes, and the cave shows him Vader, and expects that 
you know, this is just, he's going to be the same as the others as well, that he's not truly going to face this fear. He's going to push it down. And I think it's really interesting how the story treats that whole scenario because there's the conversation in Empire Strikes Back where Obi-Wan and Yoda are telling Luke that he shouldn't go and face Darth Vader. He's not ready. And Luke goes and does it anyway. And it's very interesting to kind of look at this situation from the cave's perspective (laughs) which again like not words I ever thought I would say like (laughs) consider this from the cave's perspective (laughs) but in any case we do get the cave's perspective so (laughs) the three of them argue about Luke hurrying to face Vader caution him against temptation towards the dark but on my side of the swamps smoke spins within me and without as I search for answers how how have I shown Luke a future he could learn from How have I provided a warning against danger that paired with Yoda's teachings could prevent that future from coming to pass? As Luke's ship powers up and the droid trills and beeps, I I answer my own question. I remember Yoda's willingness to pass my threshold these many years and grow denser and colder with realization. Over time, we had both sought dark apparitions, had we not? Yoda always worked to confront his inner darkness, while I always worked to show it, because we both desire the manifestation of fear different methods for the same ends alongside not against a dance a push and pull and yoda knew all of this when luke came to me he knew his teachings and he knew my methods he'd relied on my darkness i had been alone but with the old master as luke's ship rises and he rushes to his friends a fifth understanding dawns in the light a word that is both emotion and fact, one that acknowledges the past, the future, and the present, one that means hope and sacrifice. This word, this understanding, is one I cannot mimic or shape into terror, no matter how I, how hard I try. It is alliance. So not hope this time. They do nope. mention hope, but it doesn't end in hope, so, you know. Yes! <laughs> but, again, I love this. I love the idea of the fact that Yoda and actually Luke like actually do face their fears. They don't reject them. They don't try to ignore them. And that's why they are able to overcome it. This actually, again, reminds me of the healthy minds program. (laughs) (laughs) Even the healthy minds program should just pay you. (laughs) They really should. Um, Because, like, it was it, one of the things is just, like, when you're feeling afraid or anxious or, like, one of the ones I just listened to was, like, the speaker had always had anxiety and he, like, partnered anxiety, formed an alliance with his anxiety and, like, now relies on his anxiety to, like, teach him things. And, like, when he feels anxious, he, like, kind of cues into it as an old friend. And so that really strongly reminds me of this, right? Like where it's just, and also this is a very lovely dovetail into the teachings of the last Jedi, right? Where fear and failure are not things to be avoided. They're learning experiences. They are opportunities. And kudos to this author for really emphasizing that. Definitely. And also, (laughs) 
parallel to what we discussed when we talked about Leia, Princess of Alderaan, and mm-hmm. Haldo's <laughs> words of wisdom, and the fact that you know there are sometimes there are things that are scary and are unpleasant, and like you don't want to have to go through them, but sometimes you have to, and if you just don't accept them then you're never going to get through them yep exactly like you can't deny something out of existence and that's yoda's response is so inspiring because of that because he acknowledges the fact these are old fears and they're they're with him they're staying with him right he knows how to deal with them i loved all of those same stories and if you hadn't picked, like, if you hadn't picked some of them, I would have picked them as well. Like, I deliberately, <laughs> you picked yours first, and I picked other stories. There were quite a few to, to choose from. And in addition to the ones you picked, I also really enjoyed a lot of, like, the insight into the Empire. In part because I have this, like, very strong fascination with autocracy and what causes people to go along with it and the kind of bargaining that people make to justify their decisions (laughs) and we've talked about how enemies tend to be othered but maybe just because of (laughs) how things have happened here and also throughout history I find myself wanting more of an explanation than just like there are people who wear helmets and they're stormtroopers and they have no backstory. And I don't know if that's because I'm looking for like how not to go along with autocracy (laughs) or looking for common humanity or just being endlessly naive. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the like diversity portrayed throughout this book. So you have everything from like Kendall Ozzel, who has kind of like an Ebenezer Scrooge backstory, which is kind of funny to think about. Veers, who I now always pay attention to whenever (laughs) I encounter him. (laughs) And I never remember what his face looks like. It's so frustrating. I'm like, Veers, Veers, Veers. Yes, let me look this up. Uh, Fanatically committed to Lord Vader. Cannon House, who's an old guard. Piet? I don't know. Piet? Pete? I think so, Piet, yeah. Piet, uh, who, like, takes a lesson of the cave, even though he obviously didn't go to the cave and uses fear as, like, his motivation. And then Lord Vader's escort stormtrooper, one of them, named Dina, who ultimately deserts because she decides that the justifications she's been making to herself don't hold up. And there are others as well. Um, So I think maybe let's let me look here it's kind of a wide range for mine yeah i guess really only one (laughs) deal with the empire although i did limit myself so we'll start with that one and so my first story is amara kell's rules for thai pilot survival probably by django wexler i had not heard of django wexler he apparently has published the flintlock fantasy series the shadow campaigns the Young Adult Forbidden Library series, and other works. I had not heard or read these. I'm interested. I I feel like flintlock fantasy is not a term I'm familiar with, but is a term I might like. And so this one is written from the perspective of a female fighter pilot. 
And it outlines five slash six rules that she adheres to. It gives so much backstory for time pilots. Uh, I guess I never really thought about that really all that much, including like the fact that ties are produced very cheaply. It is essentially, mm-hmm. um, what is that quote? It is John Glenn. As I hurtled through space, one thought kept crossing my mind. Every part of this rocket was supplied by the lowest bidder. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and there's that- a lot of, of discussion <laughs> in this story about how ties are produced very cheaply versus yep. the rebel ships. And there's a comment that Amara makes about how like the rebels seem to have a lot of money, but not a lot of pilots because... People are willing to like throw money at the rebellion, but not to actually be involved mm-hmm. in the fighting. And so they have shields and they have astromechs to help repair their ships. And ties are basically just like bare bones, only what's needed to like make <laughs> a ship work. And that they have an advantage and that they're more like maneuverable and can move in ways that the rebel ships can't. But like, other than that, they're just yeah. like have no amenities whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think a overall lesson from the entire from a certain point of view series is that both the rebellion and the empire go through a lot of pilots. A lot of pilots. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I would not I mean it's a it's a I can see the appeal for being a pilot. I would not volunteer to be a pilot in any way. Um and then outright outlines that the Empire's approach is we have more people. So if our pilots die, no biggie. We have more. <laughs> Whereas every pilot that they kill for the rebels is more of an impact, which we find in other stories in from a certain point of view. I also really enjoy how they talked about the fact that the other part of the Empire strategy, like they just instruct all of their pilots to just fly straight at the rebel ships. Oh, they're God. like, if you fly straight at them, you just keep shooting them. Like, if you hit the ship, like, you explode, but they explode. So, in it's the end, it's a win. And, like, Amara like, talks mm-hmm. about how she's figured that out. And she's like, yeah, no, like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yep. Rule number three don't go at them head on. I know it's not what the tactics manual says. Listen, though. If you manage to keep from crashing into things for long enough, eventually you'll find yourself going against an actual enemy starfighter. It's what we're here for, after all. For the last few years, that's usually meant rebels. So a couple things. It's easy to feel invincible. It's easy to forget that the rebels fly X-wings. So you go in head-on. Pew, pew, pew! (laughs) And the X-wing shields barely flicker and it starts to fire back and you realize very briefly that it's twice your firepower plus a rack of proton torpedoes and then you know thank you for your service etc etc so no don't do that (laughs) i really liked this story i probably would have chosen this one as an honorable mention so i'm really glad that you chose this one and i wouldn't normally think that i would be into a story from an imperial point of view but like again this story just has such a strong voice like amara is such a strong character even in just this brief story and yes. she she almost like reminds me of afra in a way like she has an afra vibe oh totally and this is 
part of the reason I chose this story is because like this is an excellent segue (laughs) into like there's a lot of like LGBTQ representation in this novel which is fantastic but something about (laughs) the like there's a lot of like intrigue with like specifically imperial females that's just like very intriguing I don't know if that's just like Dr. Afrin I just really need to read more but like it was so Amara falls in love with one of her fellow pilots Howl Runner I don't know if we ever learned her like full name. They go by nicknames. I don't think we learned her actual yeah. name. Yeah. So Amara's nickname is Shadow, and Hellrunner joins the squad. And one of Amara's rules is never get attached, and she becomes attached. And she, Howl is really cool. <laughs> um, she seems like she's force sensitive because there there's something that like happens. There they end up. Their squad ends up being the squad of TIE fighters that goes after the Millennium Falcon in the asteroid field and like discovers them when they, the Millennium Falcon flees the Exegorth, Sayo. And (laughs) Sayo's story comes first, I do believe. And so there's, there's a passage where they like shoot out a tooth and I just felt really bad for Sayo. I was like, leave Sayo alone. Um, (laughs) Again, we cannot escape. Leave Brittany alone. (laughs) (laughs) Every time. Leave Sayo alone. Leave Sayo alone. Uh, (laughs) And so it ends up like as the story progresses, Amara violates her own rules and goes to assist her squad comprised of cloud flies, as she calls pilots who like don't last long enough to survive and howl and they manage to survive because howl's force sensitive and she gets them out of there and so after a near-death experience amara comes up with rule number six which is if you're going to get attached to someone make sure it's to a girl who flies like an ash angel hopped up in a death sticks which did evoke the like manic pixie dream girl trope to me a little bit and I was I meant to go back and like read to see if like Howell had any other like purpose in this story than advancing the main character's plot which would make it very sad if she didn't but I get the feeling that is the case (laughs) yeah Uh, but I mean we don't know what happens afterward because it only kind of takes us through the beginning of their relationship where like they have a near miss before that where Hall gets them out of a situation and then like they take a shower together and oh my God. then there's not really any more information about their relationship other than I think them like kissing after this incident with Sayo. So yeah. I I would assume that like they then continue their relationship. Yes. Yes. And that Howell has like other aspirations than continuing a mark. Kel's plot line. Um, I did was looking up. I'm like, where did this even come from? This like whole trope, and it's like very much like Garden State. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember it specifically from uh, what was that? I'm sorry. I just like I'm scanning this article because it's pretty long, and yeah. also <laughs> as contemporary a trope as it feels, it's as old as Dante with his vision of being guided through paradise by his saintly Beatrice. <laughs> 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 oh, 
Also, th- that does bring up a good point in talking about their relationship. This book definitely is a lot more sexual than <laughs> Star Wars normally is. I would totally agree. Yes. Which yes. I'm fine with. I don't, like, we've talked before about how I'm, how I'm a little weird about <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> and like, it's my own issue. But I don't know. I was fine. I was fine with this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, the shower sounds fantastic. <laughs> I was very in favor of the shower. Um, there's a later story. Wait, I should totally mention this because there's the boots. Oh, yes. I have to talk about this story briefly. Um, this one was kind of not as solid, which is why I didn't pick it as a favorite. The backup backup plan. It's about someone who's Lando's like, back, like assistant. I don't know. Third hand man and it's not it's kind of convoluted but basically her she's into a imperial captain ella who like turns her in but it's all part of the plan and then at the end it ends with them being together and ella starts stripping and there's a part where (laughs) tells like ella yes leave the boots on this time which i was just like again there for it (laughs) i was like that's fantastic so i think i just need to read dr afro and then the second story i chose was but what does he eat by sa chakraborty this is another one that i could have chosen for sure this was one of the ones that like this one and the next one are both things that like you had sent to me and like teaser releases or it was it was like a little caption about this book so and i had definitely heard of this author but did not have any specifics on her but she wrote the devravad trilogy the city of brass kingdom of copper and emperor empire of gold and this this story is told from the perspective of a devronian celebrity chef toro who is currently employed for Lando and Bespin. And it kind of starts with her being awoken in an ungodly hour, the daylight, (laughs) which I feel like is pretty solid based on, I had a friend who worked in the restaurant industry and this sounds pretty on par. Yeah. And (laughs) definitely sounds Mm -hmm. like the reality of chefs in our world. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And she is very unhappy about this entire situation. And then it turns out that Lando's asking her to craft a meal for Darth Vader, essentially for show, like just to not insult him. Um, Which I thought was interesting. I was like, I don't know if Darth Vader would be insulted by food. Like, can you imagine Anakin? Like, but there's another, like, there's a uh, Obi-Wan story in this. Where he talks a lot about Anakin being into food. But as it seems, so... Maybe Anakin would be insulted. (laughs) This was interesting to me because it kind of gets into, like, what did everyone know about Darth Vader? Yeah. Where it depends on how the author chooses to write about Darth Vader. But in this story, I feel like 
he was kind of like this this boogeyman where people were like I don't know like they knew about Darth Vader but they didn't know much about him like they just knew that he was kind of the emperor's enforcer and like he was really scary and you don't want to deal with him yeah and like nothing else like (laughs) so it's a question to everyone in this story like if he does eat and I feel like if you like, don't around know. Darth Vader, you would yeah. know, like, he never takes his helmet off, but these people don't know. So there are all these questions and all this mystery about, like, what Darth Vader actually is. Yeah, that makes sense. And so basically, like, Toro asks Lando, what would you even have me cook? We don't know if he eats. And Lando responds, it doesn't matter if he eats, it's about appearance. It's a show. A lie to make them feel important. And it's only this time, I swear. And she frowned. You think they'll leave Cloud City that quickly? Lando's face. Lando bit his lip, a fleeting expression she couldn't read, twisting across his face. If everything goes to plan, yes. So please, some refreshments. I'll play you double your dinner rate. Just make it look fancy. Fancy? He offered her a weak smile. Come on, you saw his mask. No one dresses like that unless they have something to prove. So the man in a cape. Mine's prettier. <laughs> I love Lando. Love Lando. <laughs> love Lando. And so uh, she starts making this meal. And initially, it's not clear, like, what her commitment is. But eventually she decides, like, if it's going to be her last meal, it's going to be good. And then her Ugnaught's uh, sous chef, Gersalik, tries to persuade her, like, very obliquely initially to poison the food. And this is why I, I, like, in addition to this whole, like, backstory about, like, the chef and the amazing descriptions of food. They are amazing. Like, it is, like, I want to eat all of that even though I don't know what any of it is. And it's just, it's, like, straight up, like, food writing. Like, it's. Yeah. It's like you're you're reading Anthony Bourdain's, like, book, which I'm forgetting. (laughs) I've never read that. I need to read it. It was good. It was good. It made me feel kind of like a failure because, like, I definitely am not going to mince my own garlic. I'm sorry. Oh, I hate. Oh, there's been a debate in my household about that recently because I also hate mincing garlic. And I hate it. We often buy, like, the pre-chopped garlic, which I feel like it's fine. It's fine. And, like, some other members of my household are adamant that like only you can only use fresh garlic and you need to freshly mince it. And it's just the worst. I hate the fact that like every single time I handle an onion or a piece of garlic, it like sticks to yes. my hands so yes. long and I cannot get that smell out. I feel like then, I have, like, I don't know if it's just me. Like, does that not happen to all people? I feel like it's worse for me. I yes. And also my <laughs> chest. If I if I eat or like handle too much onion or garlic, like my chest starts to smell like onion or garlic, <laughs> which I do feel like is just me. Um, yeah, there's no like I can't deal with it. So we buy like, actually like the big tubs of it. <laughs> I went to this like Pakistani cooking class, and she used like a full little tiny like minced garlic thing. She's like, it needs flavor, and I'm like, yes. And yeah, <laughs> so I, I always my use approach. way more garlic than it specifies. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, this has two cloves of garlic. I'm putting like no. five in here. That's my approach to all seasoning. It's just like a fourth a teaspoon of cayenne. I'm like, no, no. 
But yes, going back to the story, this is exactly what she's describing as like these like amazing ingredients that sound incredible. And then we reached the point of the moral dilemma. And this was fascinating to me. This is very much like, I don't know which side I agree with. I don't know if there's a right side to pick. And so basically her sous chef, Gerslick, argues that she should poison the food because any risk or collateral damage is worth it. She's willing to die. She's willing to kill other people in order to take out Darth Vader. She makes the argument that the Empire are evil. They're monsters. They view other entities, other living creatures as species as animals and they blew up Alderaan and so like let's take our chance let's go for it and Toro argues against it because she points out that stormtroopers will probably make anyone taste it like she's immune to most poisons as a Deveronian but Gersalik would not be doesn't even know who Vader is mating so what if like he shares his meal with other people and they eat it and they die he might not even eat it, all this risk for essentially nothing. And then the Empire doesn't have any fear because the Empire feels like it already won. And so there's this passage, which I will find the page for, um, where she goes, it's 385. And she goes, I will read this passage because I feel like I have to read the passage. <laughs> All right. Toro says, there's a temple back in the forest on Davron, you know. Ancient, gorgeous. At least it used to be. We tell legends about it. People say the Jedis themselves used to gather there, that they trained the bravest warriors and cleverest peacemakers in our jungles. During the Clone Wars, a few of the Republic's last fighters even tried to make a final stand in that temple. A little of Gersalik's determination faded from her expression. Tried. Failed. The Empire bombed it from space and slaughtered every, every Deveronian they found within a thousand clicks. Claimed they were collaborators. Toro pulled the bo- uh, bowl of meringue from her assistant's hands. Now that temple is a crater in the middle of a graveyard. The kind of heroes you're talking about, Gers, they don't exist anymore. And they won't exist again. Not if some of us don't try to stop, uh, try to fight back. And then they're interrupted by blaster fire. And Toro wins the argument and says, no, we're not doing this. Which makes sense because Darth Vader never took a bite. But it was just like a very, very, very compelling discussion of two different approaches to eliminating a deadly person. And yeah, it all was happening in the background. I love this story. It's difficult. Well, it's difficult to fault either of them. Like, yes, I can totally see the risk being worth it to take out Darth Vader and to wound the Empire, but I also can't fault Toro because, like, she knows that she will be putting people that she knows and loves at risk. And she talks about how she knows that the Empire would go after her home planet and go after her family if they found out she was responsible for trying to poison Darth Vader. And, like, yeah, it it would be very difficult to be like, well, I know that if anyone finds out I did this, then 
my loved ones are going to be at risk and possibly die and still go through with it. And all for a gamble. Like she says, besides, we don't even know if he eats. And that's, yeah. Totally true. Like it is, it's a lot of risk for a very low chance of success. But then there are many situations where there's probably a low chance of success and people pursue it anyway. And that's why the rebellion is eventually able to win. So yeah, this story just was just really like put that conflict on display in a very eloquent way. Yeah. And you wonder, too, like, how many times, how many people, how many different scenarios this happened, right? Like, as the Empire expanded its power, as these things happened, like, how many people were making these decisions every day? And, you know, Anakin would just choose the risk and, like, everybody is just like, (laughs) which one would Anakin do? Okay, maybe I'll do the other. He'd choose the risk because he would be like, it doesn't matter. I'm, uh, like... Yeah, I'll be collateral fine. damage. <sighs> yeah. I definitely, like, one of my honorable mentions should have been the one from Obi-Wan, the story from Obi-Wan, because I felt so bad for him. I'm like, oh my god, I'm so with you, man. He just talks about, like, how difficult Anakin is and, like, how he thought death would be, like, a freedom. And he's still just being a force <laughs> ghost and having to hunt down these Skywalker. God. Then he has to deal with Luke. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why, like, I feel like when people complain about the duel between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader, they're just like, it's so boring. Like, it's not exciting <laughs> I feel like Obi-Wan is probably just like I'm done I'm done Like, <laughs> set me free set me free oh you're kidding I'm still here the witness speaking of the witness story was also really interesting because it's just like this like the Dina the random stormtrooper who decides to desert like crawling through and just listening to the battle the way she describes Luke's scream. She's like, I didn't think he was dead. It didn't sound like someone scream of someone who was dying. No! <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Right. So my final story, which I just couldn't resist. Like, I had a lot of different options, and I'll talk briefly about them in my honorable mention segments. But I had to pick Faith in an Old Friend by Brittany Ann Williams. Which was, again, one of the ones you sent me because it was about L3 and I can't resist L3. (laughs) So Brittany N. Williams is an actress and writer. She's currently working on her first novel. I was unfamiliar with her. I'm excited. Good luck on your first novel. I would also love to see whatever you're acting in. And... It provides even more insight into L3 as she's been integrated into the Millennium Falcon. She retained her own identity as well as naming some of the other parts of the ship. And so she created the Millennium Collective, which they just talked about being a like cool name. And it is a cool name. <laughs> L3, I'm so with you. And so it, it comprises of L3, uh, a V5T, which is a transport droid that was like part of the Millennium Falcon to start with. And then ED4, who's a slicer droid. And this 
short story is set as the Millennium Falcon is trying to escape to hyperspace from Bespin. Oh, man. I feel like this does such a good job of, like, bridging Solo with everything else. Because L3 is trying to communicate with Lando. And it's, again, (laughs) going back to our earlier stories, tragic. And I also thought it was interesting that, like, the solo (laughs) writers and directors create the story. And people are like, yes, I want to write about that. And so they're trying to communicate that hyperdrive isn't working. ED4 has a affection for Treadwell who is a WED-15 droid that Hana picked up. And she likes the way he speaks binary, and I have to agree with her. He kind of has, like, this, like, southern accent. (laughs) And I like it. (laughs) I have to wonder if the WED is a Disney reference, because... Oh, I bet. There's, like... Uh, this is good. I'm like, it's a Disney reference, but then I'm not going to be able to like adequately explain it. Um, so Disney. W.E.D., yeah, is Walt E. Disney, and like, Imagineering used to be called like, WED Enterprises, W.D. Enterprises, and anytime I see that, it just makes me think of that, so yeah, I wonder if that's a reference. I like it, if it is, because it's definitely not something I've seen otherwise. Like, I've never seen a W.E.D. droid in general. Sally Treadwell dies, which is sad because like I'm like I've never even seen this droid, but I'm like the collective shares this feeling of sadness, and it does illuminate some things that happen in the Empire Strikes Back again because that entire scene is kind of like what's going on, and the hyperdrive was not fixed. Lando's just straight up lying, and R2D2 manages to like solve the problem, which is to the surprise of everyone. Also, there's a very entertaining scene with, like, C-3PO. But, uh, yeah, the hyperdrive was not fixed. They barely made it out of there. Yeah. And then the (laughs) the hardest thing I struggled with with this story is the fact that it ended on hope. Again, if it hadn't been for the other stories, this would have been totally fine. This would have been a perfectly acceptable ending. But the fact that, like, everything else kind of, like, beat you over the head with hope, this makes it, like, that much harder when the last lines are as I read them. The collective heard Leia's heartbeat double as she sat forward in her seat. Is this love, ED4 said? Gross, which I also appreciate. That's um, <laughs> B5T, who pretty much just talks about its responses. is just like all capital, one word responses. No, said L337, because she felt it too. Because Lando might be a hedonistic, self-serving scoundrel, but he always did the right thing in the end. That was the man she'd known, and the man he was still, even without her, without her by his side to remind him. And that's who she put her faith in. That's hope. And that's how the story ends. So the story is actually also very sad. And you didn't even get into <laughs> why it's so sad. <laughs> I know. I just I briefly talked about it. But yeah, L3 is trying to communicate with Lando and like showing him pictures of Kessel. 
And he's like, oh, that's interesting. And, like, he knows that he shouldn't have bartered for her. But yeah, let's did. see. I, I I have to read some passages. I know this is your story, but... No, I'm totally <laughs> fine with that. <laughs> Let me... <laughs> All right, so it's um four three seven. It'll probably be okay four three eight. Um yes, and then there's another one. You like read that one, and then I'll try to find the other one. Okay. I was thinking of. <laughs> All right, Lando's on the ship. He slipped off to the right, and L-337 tuned into the cockpit cockpit cams just as the door opened with a hiss. She saw the pure naked longing on his face, heard his heart racing in anticipation or fear or something like love. Lando slipped into the pilot's seat, and his whole body seemed to relax. He let his head fall back against the headrest. God, I miss this ship. His eyes shifted over to the empty co-pilot's seat, L-337's old seat. He brought his right hand up in his, to his forehead and flicked two fingers with empty seats in a casual salute. He sighed and let his hand drop to his lap. It's just not the same without you, L3. He laughed, the sound harsh in the, in the silence of the cockpit. She wanted to raise her left hand and salute him back, just like she had always did before they took off, like they had done that last flight to Kessel. Lando had been her partner. L337 wanted to shout at him. Ask him why he'd risk with Falcon after he uploaded her consciousness to the ship's computer. Ask him why she mattered so little to him when she'd given so much to save them. To save him. And then he said, Lando grunted and stood, dusting himself off and readjusting his blue cape. He laid a hand on the uh, control to console and spoke softly to himself. Never gamble with something you can't bear to lose. And then she showed him Kessel. I mean, at least he shows remorse, I guess. Yeah, exactly. There's no explanation still why he did this. Like, as we were questioning. Right. I mean, I admire how this author treats the situation. Because, like you said, it does, like, fill in what happened afterward. And, like, you know, how, how could Lando do this? Which it doesn't explain, but at least it allows L3 to express those emotions. And then, yeah, like, obviously Lando should not have gambled with the Millennium Falcon. I don't know why he possibly would, given the backstory, which just, like, goes into the issues with the plot of Solo. (laughs) There are a lot of issues with, yeah, that's a a Solo problem. (laughs) For sure. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> uh, yeah. Kudos again to the author. I appreciate. Yeah. I like the, the like tying in of different strings and like threads into a cohesive whole. It's aesthetically pleasing. Any other thoughts on this one? I don't think so. Do you want to briefly mention your your honorable mention? I do. <laughs> so the first one we've already mentioned, so I'll just like be very brief about that one. It's Rendezvous Point by Jason Fry, which is a very long story about Wedge Antilles picking his crew. Uh, but I like the insights into the plot, pilot culture. <laughs> I like the insights into the pilot culture and the additional information about the formations, which I thought was really intriguing. Like 
apparently military information is kind of <laughs> like, ah, oh, sure. I also really liked Tooth and Claw by Michael Kroge. Kroge, probably. Uh, where Puss discovers that his clutch sister is fearing Wookiees to freedom. I mean, yes. Yes. Hopefully also, from Kessel. <laughs> <laughs> from everywhere, everywhere, Wookiees deserve freedom. And also because I really, really like playing Posk in Battlefront so much, so much. And then also because this is a larger story about unquestioned assumptions, like Bosket just internalized the fact that like Wookiees eat Trandoshan eggs. And that's not the case. And his sister's just like, have you seen anyone do this? Have you seen a Wookiee do this? And Bosket's like, no. <laughs> that was a good story. Yes. I like that one. Um, I also really liked Into the Clouds by Karen Strong, which is essentially a riff on Leia and Han's story, but it's a very compelling story, so I allow it and enjoyed it. And then finally, I liked Right Hand Man by Lydia Kang, which is from the perspective of the medical droid 21B, who is attending to Luke after he loses his hand in his battle with Darth Vader. I should laugh at this, but I do. (laughs) This author did such a good job of capturing Luke's voice in, like, a very, I feel, true to Luke, but also accurate way. And I would say, I want just want to say, like, this entire book does a really good job of, like, providing more humanity into Anakin and Luke in general, uh, which is kind of crazy. Because <laughs> you, as everyone knows, my feelings on Anakin. And then uh, the droid and Luke have a very thought-provoking discussion about suffering, whether it is deserved, moral and physical perfection, the force, and the standard of care. And I loved all of it. So those were my honorable mentions. Yeah, I think my honorable mentions would have been like a few of the ones you chose. And then let's see if I have any others. The one from Obi-Wan. Uh, oh, I really also enjoyed <laughs> A Good Kiss by C.B. Lee. What? Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> That's what yeah. me crazy. <sighs> Because this kid is just, like, so... He's essentially a runner. And, like, he keeps trying to be something that he's not. And then, like, he just is so frustrated with, like, attractive people exhibiting (laughs) tension. Which is fair. I get that. Yeah, I just like that aspect of it. Like, they were all betting on what was going to happen with Leia and Han. And, like, everyone was just, like, clinging to it because they were in this life-or-death situation. And, like, they just needed a distraction (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was amusing. And then, of course, like, the main character of the story is the guy who has to squeeze between Leia and Han while they're arguing <laughs> in the hallway on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be extremely awkward. Yes. And then he, like, saves the day with his runner skills because he, like, manages to save all these people because he knows the backgrounds and, like, the the base and then also he saves his love interest and then uses he can use a good kiss successfully on his love interest <laughs> <laughs> just very unimpressed I did also like Daniel Jose Older's story too it I was 
did too. <laughs> it was like it didn't have all that much substance. But like that's not that's not an insult. It was <laughs> basically an article written by like an intern at uh, some kind of like galactic newspaper, but it was like all about his own personal story, and <laughs> it actually features one of the characters from Last Shot too. And like, basically, the intern is just involved in like organized crime, and <laughs> like the editor just like he's writing these notes that are like maybe don't write about this, but like it's just so like. If you work in an office, like it's just so familiar where like the comments are like, maybe avoid like using this word. And then Grandpa. like every comment ends in thanks exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> it's very good. I I enjoy Daniel Jose Older's work a lot. Agreed. Is there any others that were like your least favorites? I really didn't like fake it until you make it. I don't know if you read that one from the um, Leppin point of view. I don't think I did, honestly. Mm-mm. Not a fan. That one really actually actively annoyed me. Obviously, it's <laughs> my least favorite. Let me let me highlight this one and just say no. Yeah, I guess the other ones like the worst. I would have to say I I really did like a naturalist on Hoth. I wouldn't say there are any that I would like uh, that I was actively like <laughs> annoyed by. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are just better than others. Yeah, fake it until you make it and then <laughs> good kiss. <laughs> <We're> like, <what>? <laughs> when I read a good kiss, I was like, for real, this is the story. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. Oh, another one that I just want to highlight is do on Batu, which first of all mentions Batu, so like already has points for it but it's about the guy with the ice cream machine <laughs> who is running through the halls of cloud city when they're like telling everyone to evacuate and he's literally carrying an ice cream maker oh my god i think i need to rewatch empire strikes back which was the same feeling i had from like a new hope because I do not remember that, and that adds so much more to that story. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> that was my reaction to that entire story. I was just like, huh, interesting. That would make a ton of sense. <laughs> wow. Well, that's what I'll be doing next weekend, or the weekend after, or sometime in the near future. Before the next season. <laughs> We do still have one more episode, so yeah, I'm entirely <laughs> done with this season. But that is it for this show, and our outro and intro and outro music is by Lobo Loco, and our segment break music is by Poddington Bear. You can find us on our website at StarWarsSleepover.com, on Twitter at SWSleepover, or where we're most active on Instagram at StarWarsSleepover. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts if you like us. And please also just spread the word and share with a friend. We would love feedback about any upcoming topics you'd like to see us cover. 
And as Loya mentioned, we will be back in two weeks with our final episode of season two, where we'll be discussing Jason Fry's novelization of The Last Jedi. Thanks for listening. And may the force be with you. Thank you.